Welcome, and thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. The Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, my last verse, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I based my whole life on that, that it pays to serve God, and I believe that with all my heart. God has given us a guidebook. God has given us a directional map. And that guidebook, that map, is the precious Word of God. Listen, don't just go and sit in the pew. Find some way to serve and serve as a family. Be a part of everything at church. And when you learn to love what God loves, um, your children will learn to love it as well. Homes are not that spiritually strong. We're getting overtaken by the world quickly, but unfortunately, we're pumping all the sewage in. You know, we're letting the world in when that ought to be a haven. In today's episode, we're continuing our series entitled, My Story Won't Wow You. Just recounting some things from my life, giving you my story. You know what? Your story is the most important tool that you have in witnessing to others. You don't believe me? Go back and take a look at how many times the Apostle Paul told his story within Scripture. You'll find it over and over and over and over and over again where Paul the Apostle used his testimony of where Jesus Christ met him on the Damascus Road and his life was changed in a moment. Why would he do that? Because I firmly believe that other than the Word of God, of course, that your testimony is the number one soul-winning tool you have to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Someone once wisely said that for some people, the only Bible that some people will ever read is the Bible you live in front of them. Your testimony. You know what's included in your testimony? Your story of what God did for you. What God saved you from. And you know the incredible thing about testimonies is is each person has a different testimony. Each person has a different testimony. Now look, we're all saved in the same way, but we all have slightly different circumstances revolving around their testimony. For instance, I was saved when I was three and a half. You can go back and listen to the very first part of this series, and I talk about my salvation. I was saved when I was three and a half. Not a whole lot of people can say that, to be saved that young. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. There are some listeners on here who you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You got saved later on in life. But the wonderful thing is, because of your testimony and your story, you can touch some people that my testimony and my story will never touch. And isn't that amazing? How valuable, how important, and how amazingly effective your story will be and can be if you only use it. And I'm afraid that's the biggest problem with Christians. They have a testimony, but they don't use it. They have a story to tell, but they don't make it known for the Lord. Look, you have coworkers, you have family, 
You have friends. You may have children. You may have parents. You have people that are counting on you to give them the gospel. And maybe you've given them the gospel before, and you've walked them through the Romans road. Well, now it's time to pull out your story and connect with them on a personal level and tell them, you know what? Here is what God did for me. It's so valuable, and it's so vital. I'd love to hear your testimony. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send in your testimony to me. What was your life like? How did you grow up? Did you grow up in a Christian home? When did you first hear the gospel? How did you react to the gospel the first time you heard it? How did God convict your heart? Do you remember where you were when you got saved? Send me your testimony. Email that to me at joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Again, that's joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. I would love to hear your testimony. Now, Another important part of your testimony is things that you've learned in your life just by living. God will teach you things through circumstances that come along in your life. There was a young banker who went to an older banker one time, and he wanted to be very successful, very, very successful. And he said, sir, how do I become a a good banker? And the older banker, who wasn't much of a talker, just looked at him and said, make good decisions. And the young banker thought, well, you know, what am I going to do with that? So he asked the old, the old banker, he said, you know, what? How, how do I make good decisions? And the older banker responded, experience. Young banker thought, okay, well, how do I get experience? And the older banker responded, making bad decisions. And uh, sometimes that's the way life works. Sometimes we make a bad decision and we learn a really good lesson by making that decision. Of course, sometimes it would be better to have not made that decision at all. But, you know, we're sinners, we, the Bible, or the, the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I don't know about you, but that song rings true with me. And uh, so we need to make sure that we're learning from the circumstances and the bad decisions that we make so that we can tell other people, hey, I, I messed up. Don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. And so your story can be such a valuable teaching tool to your children as well if you just tell them about what God did for you. Now, last time when we left off on My Story Won't Mow You, I took an episode and just told you about the mission field we were going to. And we had just arrived on the island, and I just gave you last time we did an episode about this, just some details surrounding the mission field we lived on, the little island called St. Bartholomew. And um, I gave you just some details, you know, island size, what, you know, what people did, things of that sort. And um, so now I'm going to actually get back to you. That kind of stepped away from actually telling the story, more just giving facts, because I wanted you to know, I wanted you to go there in your mind with me. And now that you've had a chance to go there in your mind with me, I'm going to tell you what life was like, what did we do, and just tell you some of our experiences there on the island. You, you say, what did you do on the island? Of course, eight and a half square miles, as we talked about last time. If you can't remember, go back and listen to that episode before you listen to this one. But uh, of course, no amusement parks, no nothing. There wasn't a whole lot to do on the island. So what did we do? Well, we did, you know, typical island things. We uh, did some snorkeling. Oh man, I loved snorkeling. And we would go out to the beach early, early, early in the morning before everybody was up and around and everybody was still drunk in bed. And uh, hey, it was France, so. Um, but we'd go out and we'd go snorkeling. And uh, so we'd go, and I got to swim with sea turtles, got to see, you know, tropical fish and reefs. And I remember one time my father and I were out snorkeling, and uh, all of a sudden he came behind me and he tapped me on the leg. 
and he pointed down, and there was a big um, eight-foot shark behind a, a, the, a, par- a portion of the coral, the, the reef there, and he pointed down to it, and I'll be honest with you, it freaked me out. And uh, I, I'm not a huge shark guy, and don't I don't want to swim with them, you know, get me away from them. Now, it was a nurse shark, and uh, but I have no idea the difference between sharks. I just know that's a shark. And so, but very interesting. We got to do some snorkeling. We got to go for hikes. Um, going back to the snorkeling before I go to hikes, yes, um, we got to see jellyfish. In fact, one time I swam right through the middle of them, didn't realize what they were. They were so tiny. I expect them to be bigger. And there's uh, there are some who that are much, much larger. These were really tiny. And I swam through them, and they just hit me all in the face, and it burned. And uh, But we were able to go for hikes. There were some hiking trails there. We got to go, you know, swimming, snorkeling, same thing. Um, there were wild goats on the island. And so my sisters and I would sometimes pack up some equipment and we'd try to catch some wild goats. We never did end up catching one. and uh, But we just had a great time there on the island with the activities that we made. And, you know, we continued to learn the language of French. People, when they would hear us speak, they would say, you're from Quebec, aren't you? And I guess with other languages, you know, when you're an American, you can tell by the way somebody talks if they're from New York. Or if they're from, you know, some other place. If they say y'all or ain't, you know, they're from the South. And I guess with other cultures, they tend to know where you are by the way you speak. And we learned our French in in, um, in Quebec, and, and people on the island tend to know that we, we were Quebecois in a sense. And that's where they thought we were from. And so the language barriers were still there. A lot of people don't realize how hard it is to um, learn a new language. If you've never tried it before, you should try learning a new language for a couple weeks and just see how it goes. It's very difficult, but not only that, is learning that there are some words that sound very similar, but they mean completely different things. For instance, my dad was preaching one Sunday morning there on the island, and he was talking about how Jesus was beaten with whips, and the word for whips in, in French is verge. And he was talking in French, and he said that Jesus was beat with verge. He was, he was beaten with whips, and, they, and he was talking about the crucifixion. I mean, really getting with it, but instead of saying verge, he said vierge. Now, not much of a difference. Verge, vierge. Not much of a difference. But instead of telling the people that Jesus was beaten with whips, he said vierge, which means virgins. And uh, so he told everybody that Jesus was beaten with virgins. There was one time where he told the people that, and I'm, I can't remember the exact words for it, but he told everybody that my sister had slept, uh, she wasn't feeling that well, so she had slept on the, he said, he meant to say the couch the night before, but he ended up saying a bar of soap, and um, instead of saying couch, because the words are so similar. One time when we were moving off the island, and we'll get to that portion of the story in a later episode, but we were moving off the island because my mom was sick. And the landlord who we were renting the house from came down and dad was talking to him about, you know, we were going to be leaving and just everything going on. And he said that his, his wife, he said, my femme, uh, she has a malediction. Now he meant to say maladie, but instead he said malediction. Now it doesn't sound like much of a difference, but a lot of times those words can sound similar. And he said maladie or malediction when he said to say maladie. And I know I'm confusing the snot out of you right now, but he said to the landlord, he said, because my wife, he meant to say in English, he meant to say, because my wife is sick. But he said, he said, because my wife has a curse. 
And um, the landlord was like, oh, no, and, and she has a curse, you know, put the little cross sign up. And, and, uh, but you can just make those, those, those mistakes within French. And, and, you know, a lot of languages, when you learn them, you'll make mistakes like that. You'll hear missionaries talk about the mistakes they've made on the field when speaking. And just in general, French is, and I know this is going to sound super, you know, obvious, French is a different language. Sometimes things just aren't the same as they are in English. For instance, we sing that great hymn, you know, there's power in the blood, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Well, the French version of that song doesn't say that. It says, Je suis fort, fort, oui plus que vainqueur, par le sang de Jésus. It says, I am strong, strong. Stronger than the, what you might say, conquerors, or stronger than victors. Stronger by the blood of Christ. But it's saying, I am strong, not there is power in the blood. And when you go into the French Bible, then you have a little bit of an issue. You see, within France, there's not, within the French language, there isn't a KJV. There isn't a King James Bible, a perfectly translated Word of God that has no errors, no contradictions. It's just not there. There's really two mainstream, at least during that time, and this was, oh, we're going on 10 years almost now since we've been on the field, and um, it's been a while, And but there is no KJV. Back then, there was two major uh, French translations of the Bible, and it was the Osterwald and the Louis Sagan, and both of them had issues. Both of them had errors in them. Both of them said things that aren't actually what the Bible says, just through translation. And so you had to pick and figure out, you know, what are we going to do? I remember we used the the Osterwald, and on Sunday mornings there were many times where my dad would correct the Osterwald with the KJV. And those are some battles, uh, language barriers you have to cross within other languages that a lot of people don't think about. And so we had that, and we were going through all these different language things, and then Catholicism was, of course, the major religion on the island, and they taught that we, people like us, were a cult. And so people were very, very standoffish from the Word of God. In our time there, we were able to distribute tracts and, and get the gospel out to over three-quarters of the island, which was incredible. And we were able to do that by God's grace. We passed out tracts. We started Bible studies. We had people coming to Bible studies. We were able to see, I think it was six or seven people saved. And God did a work, but it was a very hard work. It was a very hard place to labor. The hearts of people were very rocky, hard, turned away. The deceit of Catholicism. It was It was hard. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was hard to get people to come to the, the Word of God. I remember in particular there was one blind man, a man by the name of Bruno, and he was blind, and his sister was coming to our Bible studies, and we went to go visit Mr. Bruno. And we began talking with him, and he spoke English, and so that made it easy. And uh, But we talked with him, and we were trying to figure out how can we get him to come to the gospel. We witnessed him. He was just a rock wall. And how can we get him to come to the gospel? 
Now, I remember Dad one time, we were sitting in there, and Dad looked at him and asked him, he said, you know, what's one of the things that, uh, you know, you're you're blind now, what do you miss? I believe Mr. Bruno had gotten become blind, if I remember the story correctly. And uh, Dad, if you're listening, come on and correct me. But um, I believe Mr. Bruno was shot, actually, and that's how he became blind. But he asked him, he said, Mr. Bruno, he said, you know, how? what's one of the most difficult things about being blind now? And he thought about it for a second. He said, you know, one of the most difficult things about being blind is I don't really know what time of day it is. I'll go to sleep, and I'll wake up, and I don't know if I've been asleep most of the night or if I've only been asleep a couple hours. I just I don't know the time. And so we went and we ordered from overseas, we ordered a alarm clock that was it had a big button on top and you could push the button and it would tell you what time of day it was. And we took that clock and, and that put it in a box and wrapped it up and took it over to Mr. Bruno and he opened it up and of course we had to tell him what it was and I remember he just just cried. And then his heart was open to the gospel. We were able to lead him to the Lord, all because of an act of kindness to show that we truly cared. I think the mission field really helped to develop my thinking. That sometimes when there's a rock wall, you can beat them over the head with the Romans road all you want. And and by the way, let me I'm not gonna say that's a bad thing <laughs> to an extent. Uh, Because the Bible says that God's Word will not return void. You need to give them Scripture. But I think the phrase, you know, that people say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, can often apply a lot, especially to people who know you. Or maybe they don't know you. And they want to see, how much do you really care about me? And I firmly believe that he got saved because he saw some people cared. There was another man by the name, if I remember correctly, and it's been so long now, some of the memories are running together, but I believe his name was Edmond. And I remember we had witnessed to him and witnessed to him and witnessed to him on his, on our our missionary presentation, our video that we showed across the United States. We were going around to churches and and desperately trying to get to the field, to raise funds to get to the field, there was a picture of an, an older man and an older lady who had been married for years and years, and we were getting getting the, that funds to be able to go over to the field and witness, and one of that those couples we wanted to witness to specifically was a couple we would show in that video. And I remember, I believe it was just a few months before we were able to get out to the field, she passed away. And as far as we know, she was lost. All that broke our hearts. If only we had been able to get there sooner. My friend, we cannot wait. We must send the missionaries now. There's no time to lose. There are people lost and dying. But I remember her husband was still alive when we got to the island, and we witnessed to him, and he was in such bad health. Wow. Really bad health. And we'd go witness to him and witness to him and witness to him. And one day, it became very clear he was not going to live much longer. And I remember my dad and I were sitting there with him, and we were witnessing to him. He was laying down in his bed, and his breathing was so heavy, just a deep, (sighs) so heavy and so deep. 
and we witnessed him for probably the last time he would be alive. And with a gentle frailty, he nodded his head that he did indeed want to get saved. I remember Dad began to lead him through the sinner's prayer, and Dad would say something in French, and he would repeat, and by the way, it's not the words that save you, it's where your heart is, and and Dad explained that so eloquently and so very clearly. I can still take you back to that small little house, wide open windows, sweating, no AC, a hot afternoon, and we were just praying, oh, what a, a sweetness to know that somebody was getting saved. But I'll tell you what, the devil didn't like that we were on his stomping grounds. And in that moment, I, I firmly believe it was like a, a tussle spiritually for that man's soul. Because in those moments, as Dad was leading him through the sinner's prayer and he was placing his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's like Satan almost tightened his grip because he couldn't even breathe anymore. I remember listening to him pray and just the air literally go out of his body. And as he tried to say the words, my Savior, my Sauveur, mon Sauveur, he could barely get it out. And over and over he tried to take a breath to try and say the words, mon Sauveur, and he would breathe. And he couldn't get it out. And I remember just as a as a young teenage boy just kneeling there just praying, God, uh, please keep him alive. We I remember when Dad and I got in the car to go home, we, both of us said the same thing. We thought he was going to die right there. And all of a sudden, you could just feel God's presence in the room. And that man ended up getting saved and was able to get the words out, amen, and uh, place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But just the incredible stronghold Satan had there through Catholicism. It was a hard place. Thankfully, as I said, we were able to see a few people get saved, a handful of people. You say, was it worth it all that time for like six or seven people? If one of those six or seven people was me, oh, if it was just me, if, if if a missionary family had come to my island and I was the only person who had gotten saved, I would have looked at them and thanked God for a million, bazillion, gazillion years and said, Lord, I'm so thankful. It was worth it. Thank you. Yes, it was worth it. Of course it was. Was it a lot of time? Sure. Was it a lot of effort? Sure. Was it a lot of money? Sure. Was it hard at times? Absolutely. Was it worth it? I'd do it every day over again if it meant those six or seven souls getting saved. Was it always hard? No. No, it wasn't always hard. We had great times there in St. Bart's. We had times where it was difficult. Um, We didn't have AC in our home. We had AC in the bedrooms only, two bedrooms, and the rest of the house was hot. I tell you what, I'm an AC lover. I love cold AC. I love to keep it freezing. I'm just, I love the AC. And there in the islands, we didn't have it. Um, Just at night is when we use the AC. And that's the only time we really used it. And I tell you, one of the things I absolutely despised about the island was being done with, you know, your day's work or whatever you were doing, school and playing outside and do whatever. Taking a shower, then going to sit on the couch to watch a movie or play a game or do whatever, and you're sweating again because it was so hot. And so, yeah, there were things that are tough. There are things that are difficult. You go to a different island or you go to a mission field, it's going to be tough. It's not your home to a degree. 
to a degree. You can make it home. But when you first arrive there, it's culture shock. It's different. There are things you have to get used to. But, yeah, there, there were things that are hard, but would I do it again? Of course. Of course. If it means a soul getting saved, then of course I would. It's worth it. So, our time on St. Bart's, we had a great time. Things were tough. It was difficult. And right before we left St. Bart's, it was one of the hardest times of our lives as a family. Hard. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode on what caused us to leave the island. Many of you have already heard at least a good portion of that story, but I want to recount it for you again and talk about some things that I went through, being a son going through that type of uh, situation. But I want to give you one thing before we leave off today. It's a firsthand miracle. I literally got to experience a firsthand miracle I talked about how last time, of course, they don't have any fresh water on St. Bartholomew. There's none. They all run off of cisterns. And um, just not too, not too long ago, they got, I think it's called desalination, where they take the salt out of salt water. And uh, they started producing that out. But that was a newer thing when we got to the island, and it was very, very expensive. If you wanted a truckload of water sent to your house which, by the way, would, would not fill your cistern. They were huge cisterns. You know, it'd collect the rainwater off of your roof and send it down through the gutters into the cistern. And that's how you got fresh water for drinking, for, for uh, showering, for doing anything you needed fresh water for. That's where you got it from. And so you could order a truckload of water. And if I remember correctly, I think it was like 160 or over $200 uh, to buy a truckload of water. Now you're thinking some big truck. No, think like, you know, a you know, a little Isuzu truck at a golf course. I mean, super, super, super tiny. And uh, so you could order water. And I remember that they installed city water where you could go out to the side of the road. You could turn on your pump, and there they had a little spigot. You could hook up a garden hose to it, and we would stick it in one of the... um, the holes going down, the overflow holes going down into our cistern, and we would run the hose for maybe an hour, you know, in times where it was really hot and there had been no rainfall, you were running out of water, we would take that garden hose and we'd stuff it in one of the outlets, and then we would um, we would let the water go into the cistern and fill it up for maybe an hour, maybe two at max, and uh, because it was so expensive. And so that, that was the deal. If it was hot, no rain, we'd go, we'd take that garden hose and fill up the cistern, not all the way, just an hour's worth of water, which, you know, I don't know, it put maybe a sixth of what the, what the cistern could hold in there. And then you would pay the bill because it had a little meter that would run while you were pumping the water. And that meter would run and it would stop and they'd send you a bill. And after so long, whether it be an hour or two hours, Dad would tell me, hey, go ahead and go turn off the pump. Go pull the heart and garden hose out. Well, you know where I'm going with this. I remember one day Dad told me to turn on the pump. I put the garden hose in. It was filling up the cistern. And Dad told me, you know, hey, in an hour... I need you to make sure you go turn it off. Well, let's just say the next morning, I yeah, the next morning, I woke up and there was water running out the overflow. Uh, there were little pipes, you know, so your sister wouldn't go into your house. It would overflow out into the yard. And the overflow spout was just running because I left the water on all night. And that was a lot of money that I just put in in water. A lot of money. 
And so I remember that, uh, oh man, I went out there and I was so nervous. I thought, dad's going to kill me. Yeah, he's going to be so angry. He's going to be so mad. This is, you know, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And and my dad wasn't those angry, fly-off-the-handle type guys. But, you know, I'm a father now. I get why you would be kind of upset with that because you just cost me a, a lot of money. And so I remember I went in and told dad, and, you know, he was fine. Fine, perfect, no issues, and he was fine. And he said, you know, that's not, you know, I'm, I'm upset, obviously, but, you know, you shouldn't have done that, but... It's okay because I was absolutely distraught about it, just distraught. And um, so the bill came in. We were, you know, just slowly, agonizingly waiting for the bill to come in from the water company. And it came in. It was just our normal maintenance fee. You know, it was supposed to be like over $1,300 worth of water that we got. and um, But it was just the normal maintenance fee. And we thought, hmm, that's strange. So we went out and looked at the pump for the meter, and we compared the month before bill, what the meter read, to this month, and the meter hadn't gone up any, just a, just a couple gallons. And we turned on the pump, and the meter was broken. You say, what does that mean? That means that God <laughs> interacted on my behalf. I firmly believe that was a firsthand miracle. God came down with a sledgehammer, and he took it and went bang to that pump and broke it because that pump meter no longer worked. It did not record all those gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water that I put into the cistern. Can I just say, and you may say, oh, please, give me a break. Uh, hey, as a 15-year-old kid, that was a miracle. And still to this day, only God could do that. Only God could do that. Break a meter and not record the $1,300 worth of water that we put into our cistern. That was just amazing. Hey, God can do those miracles too for you. He can break water meters for you too if you'll only trust him. My friend, trust God and tell others your story. Because I firmly believe that if you're willing to tell others and share your testimony or story about how good God's been, not for your pride, hey, because I didn't do anything great in that story, not for your pride, not for your selfish gain or anything like that, but just telling other people how good God is, I firmly believe if you're committed to that, God will give you the miracles and the stories to tell other people so that his name can be spread abroad. Next time in My Story Won't Why You, we'll talk about what led us to leaving St. Bartholomew. Until then, my friend, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ. <laughs>